Hello. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. I'm Gordon. Welcome back, everybody. We do very much appreciate you listening in. So, Gordon, you wrote it. What's on the agenda this time? <laughs> well, it was uh, pr prompted by a comment one of the members of the camera club made uh, relating to the challenge, the prime time challenge that you had given us. And uh, this person had looked over their images and realized that he'd never used a 14 millimeter lens, or pretty much never, uh, as a common lens. And he thought this would fit your challenge quite well. And a later comment from him was that it was actually awe-inspiring because he said, if I had not picked this lens, I would not have learned how to use it. And it's opened up a field of a view of photography that I would never have otherwise had. And I said, well, that sounds like a good enough reason for us to maybe talk about it. I think that's a great reason to talk about it. Now, excuse me, in the, in the case of the 14, that's going to be a ultra-wide an ultra-wide-angle lens. Yep. But you're talking about wide-angle lenses in general. Well, wide angles in, in general, um, ultra-wide in particular, because they are, they are different. Uh, they are different from what we normally consider to be a wide-angle. So I think maybe it would make sense to maybe define our parameters here. Okay, I think that's fair. So for those who are not comfortable with terminology or see varying types of terminology. So most of the time when we talk about a lens that approximates the angle of view of the human eye, we refer to this as a standard lens. And um, what would you say is, is the angle of view? We talk about it a lot, but sometimes I get lost in this. So angle of view of a standard lens of the human eye is? Um, it's, it's going to depend upon who you talk to. Okay. From an analyst perspective, but let's use you as an example. That would be like a 25 mil. 25 for me. Yeah. On micro four thirds, a 50 on an SLR. Yes. Be that, or, or a mirrorless full frame sensor, about 60, 30, 63 degrees of coverage diagonally. Okay. Uh, across the corners. And anything that gives us more than that falls into the bucket of wide angle. Okay. Wide angles can be, therefore, any focal length or angle of view, a focal length that's shorter, a wide or an angle of view that's greater. But then there comes this point where you cross into that boundary where we start to talk about ultra-wides because the world starts to look different. It does. So if we go back in time, not that far back, <laughs> uh, wide-angle lenses were thought of as 35 mil in the context of what we would call full frame. Sure. And then the 28. Yeah. And the 28 was sort of the standard wide angle, if you would, mm -hmm. as it was about twice okay. the angle of view of your standard lens. Right. Pretty comfortable. A lot of folks said it wasn't enough. It didn't give them a really interesting feel. And we start to see manufacturers go wider. 
became 24. And now we see 24 to whatever zooms or their equivalent thereof for different sensor sizes all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I think we think now that 24, that's wide angle. But we can go wider than that. So that would so be like 12 I, I, on... So That'd be like 12 on a micro four thirds. Right. But you've got lenses that are much bigger angle of view than that. So mine, mine is a seven to 14. So seven would be uh, 14 to 28. Right. Exactly. Is, and if you go wider than that, I guess we're now getting into the realm of the fisheye lens, which is another whole oh. kettle. Kettle different fish. kettle of bug-eyed fish. <laughs> yeah, definitely bug-eyed. Uh, and there are definitely two kinds of fi fish eyes. There's a rectilinear fish eye, and there's a circular fish eye. Okay. Both of them have that characteristic bending distortion. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But limited. Probably amplitude. limited use. Okay. Uh, I know because I have a fish eye, a 10 mil, and uh, it doesn't get used a lot. Except for those times when it's really interesting to use it. Okay. So when we think about these ultra-wides, that's going to be anything below, say, in your world, 12 millimeter. Right. In the full-frame world, well, it's going to be anything below 24. Sure. As manufacturers started to look at this, they, again, had to change the way they did optics. Okay. Because you've got a much more bulbous front element, the wider you want to go. Right. Because you've got to collect the light from all these, this much wider angle. It also changes how the lens is built. Mm -hmm. And how far into the body the rear element has to extend. But because of some of the things that happen when we have wide angle lens designs. Okay. So I think we started to see this about 15 years ago when Nikon brought out the 14 to 24. That was okay. a 14 mm -hmm. to 24 ultra-wide zoom. And it was probably the first ultra-wide zoom of consequence. Okay. And manufacturers started building fixed focal length or single angle of view ultra-wide lenses. Okay. The 14, 16s, that sort of thing. But when you use them, you got to think about it a little differently. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got the, this... 7 to 12. That's effectively a 14 at the... Yeah, 14 the to 28. Um, what's one of the first things that you notice about that lens? Well, it's wide. There are all kinds of things come into the periphery of the image that uh, wasn't there before, uh, particularly your feet. <laughs> right. And then there's the, the whole issue of your depth of field. Okay, let's talk about depth of field. Okay. What is the big difference you find when you go to an ultra-wide you, you, and you start to think about depth of field? Uh, everything is included. Okay, elaborate. <laughs> well, uh, at relatively average f-stops, your depth of field starts to extend from about a foot in front of the lens to infinity. So it's so not as much a, work to focus. Sorry? Not much work to focus. No, no. In fact, uh, if you work it right, 
you may never have to focus. This is a great implementation, I think, of something we've talked about in the past very briefly. That's touching on hyperfocal distance. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, if you've got the right aperture mm -hmm. and the lens set properly, you never have to touch to focus again. Right. Within a range. And the range being the, the hyperfocal distance, the acceptable depth of field. Right. Um, so you get down around F5.6 or F8, the depth of field is a marvelous thing. It is. Uh, I, I looked at it uh, I, when I was shooting with the full frame. Uh, I had acquired a 20 millimeter prime lens. And if I f set that at F8 and I manually focused it at two feet, I had a depth of field from 10 inches in front of my camera to infinity. That would make it very quick. Very quick. Pick it up, point it, shoot it. Sort of the ubiquitous point and shoot, but on a really big sensor on a big sensor so it was it it was awesome that technique of using hyperfocal distances is one of the hallmarks of a lot of successful street photography because you're not twisting a lens or having that autofocus motor going work 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 while right. you're trying to capture something that may be sort of a quiet situation or something that could be distracting or annoying mm -hmm. so that's a huge value proposition now I know that in the in the time when I worked, you know, part time in a camera store, I used to hear all the time, "Oh, you want to do landscapes? You need a wide angle lens." But I don't think that you buy that song. I don't buy that song. Uh, the reason I don't buy that song is, they say, "Well, you've got to have this wide angle to capture this vast panoramic landscape view." What they don't tell you that everything in that landscape view is of a minuscule size, that you really, you, you lose much of the detail that you're looking to capture. And that seemed, that's, that's perfectly logical. Because everything is shifted further back. It feels further away. It's much further away. So you can get more in the frame. And I find that that is one of the things that disappoints people. Oh, I took. I went on this vacation or this to this place, and I took all these pictures, and I can't see any of the things that I saw. Right. You know, they've used the wide-angle lens. Maybe they've been out west and they've seen critters in the fields. I remember a fellow who was really upset. He came back from the Tetons. He had bighorn sheep, and he did. Very very small, horn <laughs> bighorn yes. sheep, because of the distance, their natural distance coupled by the perspective exaggeration that gets created when you allow much more in. The human right. eye is wonderful. We, I can look through a 14 mil lens and zero in on one tiny subject. Mm -hmm. The camera, the camera doesn't. The camera sees what you give it. Um, so what would, so without taking away from the conversational wide angles, where do you see value in one of these ultra wides if it's not the generic landscape? Well, let's, let's stay with the landscape. It can be in landscape, but you have to change your thinking. You have to think more in terms of foreground, midground, and background. Your background should be large. 
because no matter how you cut it, it's going to be reduced. And the things in the foreground are going to get to be very large. So... How do you mean large? Relative to the background? Relative to the background, relative to the foreground, or to the midground. Okay. So that little child who's standing three feet away from you will be as tall as a mountain. Will be as tall as a mountain, but the ice that's floating on the lake... So if you're going to do something like this, the, 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 the object must be to have something very distinct and attractive very close to you in the foreground, superimposed on the midground and the background. And then you have an attractive image. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the foreground, let's call it the point of, point of interest, has to, has to be outstanding because you'll see every little detail that there is on that. A rock that's right up in front, the the, the ice uh, that's floating on the lake, the ice that's heaving on the shore. They're, they're outstanding. But that has to be where your eye goes, and the rest of it is uh, supplementary. So does that change your shooting position at all? Your height has to get down low. Uh, if you were, for instance, looking at walking on a on the sand of a receded uh, tide, you'd have sand ripples. And if you got down low and put the camera almost at ground level, the ripples in the sand become large. They're very pre prominent. And if it's leading to appear in the background, it's, it looks awesome. So... Getting low, getting close. Getting close. Very close. And the rule I was taught to use is get as close as you think you can and then get closer. And then you might be within range. And preserve that depth of field. And preserve the depth of field. Like so that. foreground, midground, background, you want everything in focus. You want everything in focus. You want the front stuff large. And you want to be in planar proximity to it. So in the same plane as it is. Yes. Not looking down on it. No, don't look down unless you deliberately want to do that. Because as soon as you tilt your camera down, you now have all kinds of distortion coming into the image. Okay. Okay. So you talked about getting down on the ground mm -hmm. or, or lower to the ground if the ground is part of your foreground. Mm -hmm. What do you do? You know, we, we see the same sort of question. Well, I want to go do architectural photography. Right. Oh, I want to go down into the city and take pictures of the great buildings. Yep. But invariably, even with a standard lens, when you tilt the camera back, yep. that building starts to look like it's fallen over and you're not going to see the whole building. Right. If I put on an ultra-wide lens, I might be able to see the whole building. But if I start to tilt that camera back, that then, building could look like you, it's falling over. Yeah, the building will fall over uh, backwards. Um, Not really. It'll just <laughs> look like that. So uh, the, I guess the second major rule is you have to keep 
the camera vertical and or, or put it another way watch the lines in the building if there's a divergence between what you're seeing in your lens and the, the sides of the building then adjust your camera so that they are parallel otherwise you will miss that and if you can't see the whole building then you have to make a conscious decision or is it more important to see the whole building, in which case you do have to tilt mm -hmm. and either decide to correct post or uh, think of some other way of showing it. But if you want the building to look like a building, then make sure your lines, the lines of the edge of your lens should be parallel to the lines of the building. Again, so it, it's maintaining that planar acuity. Yes. So the back of the camera where the sensor is parallel to the face of the building. Yes. Because as soon as you tilt away, it's, it's going to look like it's tilting away in the other direction. Yes. For camera tilt. Now, by the way, for those who really want to do this kind of work, there is a solution, but not available for all cameras. And that's called the tilt shift lens. Sure which approximates only the ability to move the front and rear planes as we used to do in a view camera. Right. And you, they, can, they can be very effective, but we don't find them for every mount. We don't find them for every size, and they're fairly expensive yep. when you do find them. But if that's a big deal for you, that's a really, that's a very effective type of tool doesn't mean you have to have them, though, because as you said, Gordon, you can fix some of this in post-processing if you give yourself enough space. Yes. And generally, you will have enough space. Okay. Are there other places that you find these ultra-wide lenses to be of use? You know, in, in what other types of photography would you suggest using it in? I think I had mentioned the use of ground effects. Uh, you did? Uh, anything with converging lines becomes really attractive for this okay. because what's close to you is coming from top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right, and going to a pinpoint not very far away. So the use of either converging lines or pathways that are curving up to the mansion or a road that's going up the side of the hill that starts to look outstanding with this uh, one of these lenses. So you're suggesting that leading lines become even more important in your composition. Yes. When you're using one of these lenses. Yeah, you, you should actively go looking for leading lenses. Okay, one of the applications that I've seen um, for this, I've done it myself, is in automotive photography. Right. You know, you go, particularly if I think back to those wonderful, impractical muscle cars, or, or even older 1950s Finmobiles. Right. You get down nice and low, you know, behind the, the fin of a late 50s Eldorado with an ultra-wide lens and shoot it properly. That thing looks 100 miles long mm -hmm. and enormous. And... People say it's distortion, but it's not. It's just perspective exaggeration. Right. It's the only distortion that the lines bend, and they don't. Right. 
but you can get these great looks. And if you look at automobile photography through the 60s and the 70s, even into today, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to note that this is shot with a wide angle and sometimes an ultra wide angle lens, particularly in something that I think you want to talk about, which is when you're doing close up work. Yes. I think I, I think it could be, uh, be very effective in close-up work. And I, I found this out by mistake, actually. I was asked to take some snapshots. I wasn't even trying to be artsy-fartsy about this, but I was uh, asked to take some snapshots of a friend's um, anniversary um, get-together. And, and they had very attractive-looking centerpieces on the individual tables. And I found that I could get very close to the centerpiece so that it was way up and in your face almost. There was mm-hmm. no mistaking what it was. But because of the wide angle nature and the depth of field, everything beyond that, the, the whole room full of people and the, the good time they were having was very, was sharp and inclusive. So... The candlesticks, uh, wedding parties, I would think, with the with the glasses and the bride and the groom, maybe in the background, maybe reflected or refracted through the glasses. That starts looking really attractive. And I would have to agree with you. A thousand years ago, when I used to do weddings, people put a lot of effort back then into those place settings. Mm-hmm. You know, in the centerpieces and the way the layouts and the you know, the glassware and the silverware. Right. Before everybody sat down and turned it into, you know, <laughs> drunken Uncle yes. Bob's nightmare. Yes. And the only way to get images that had resonance was to get down low and get close with an ultra-wide lens. Because mm-hmm. if you didn't, it was just a boring snapshot. There was no dynamism in it. As you say, the centerpiece is, oh, look, it's a bowl with flowers until you get close right. and you leverage the power of the depth of field to not only get everything in the centerpiece in focus, but also the background yes. that sets context and creates continuity, uh, particularly in the context of, a, of an album. Yes. It, it, it's extraordinarily effective. Because with other, with other lenses, uh, you either get the people sitting at the table or you get the centerpiece, but you don't get them both. Right. So if you want to make those centerpieces pop and become part of the album or the image or the front cover, whatever, get that wedding cake right up close in person and get everything behind it. Right on. Clean where it should be. Otherwise, the wedding cake starts to look like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And the bride and groom are drunk. And you're about they, well, they may be. <laughs> they may be. But you may not get paid. So, you know, something to think about. Now, one of the other questions that always comes up, well, can I use a wide-angle lens for portraits? What do you think? Sure you can. But I'm not sure you want to. The the opposite of the depth of field that you get is the distortion you get as you get close. So the distortion that looks attractive with the centerpiece tends to look a lot less so when it's a person's nose. And I think that's I think that's very fair. 
And and just a quick reminder, when we're talking distortion, we're really talking perspective exaggeration. Sure. It, this isn't fisheye bend it around no. a corner no. type of distortion. One of the other things that I would encourage people, and I want to come back to portraits because I've seen beautiful portraits shot with a 24 on full frame. Right. But it takes skill. You can't put your subjects near the edge. Right. Because they tend to stretch. Yeah. And uh, as a photographer, groups of people never, ever put people you don't want to hate you at the ends of the group, real close to the edges of what the lens sees. Right. Because they will become wider. <laughs> and they will not like you. Yes, there is And they that. may use words and language that could hurt your feelings, which they sh which it should because you screwed up. But you can use wide angles for portraits, but you have to use them in context. Right. An environmental portrait with a wide angle lens, a sprinter in the blocks, get down yep. low, shoot up, get the sense of power, get close. That's a brilliant portrait. It's not a headshot. Right. Because a headshot with an ultra-wide is going to get you beaten up. Right. So, yeah, it, it, it can be done, but... Yeah. Firefighter on a truck. Some great... But think, if you think portraiture, think yes, but think environmental portrait. Okay. Cyclist. You're, you enjoy riding a bicycle. Right. That's a great environmental portrait with a, with a wide-angle lens. You know, if you're allowed, today we can't, but if you're allowed, the triage team in a hospital. Right. That's a great environmental portrait. Uh, Joe McNally did a series of beautiful, actually, headshots with a 24. Okay. But the way he positioned the ballerina, and it was ballerina, Yes, I remember that image. It didn't feel like there was any exaggeration or distortion. Right. You got to put your eye to work. You have to see. To your, to the point you made earlier, you got to look through the camera. Yep. And be honest with yourself on what you're seeing, but you can use them for portraits. It doesn't mean you're SOL, but it does mean that you got to be a bit more careful. Right. And respectful, I guess. What are your, do you have any other thoughts on these on these guys? No, I, I think that covers my experience. I, I, I don't know. Okay. So let's suppose, for example, someone were to come to you and say, hey, Gordon, I heard what you were talking about and around ultra-wide-angle lenses. I don't have one. Right. Where should I start? Uh, because I think somebody had suggested to me, I had got a 15 to 30, I think, was Nikon's, um, I think it was Nikon. And, and that seemed to be uh, pretty good. Uh, that, that, that covered everything. It covered, you know, from the, the, the fringes of a regular type lens, say a, say a 30 millimeter, to a 14, which plants it squarely in the, in the camp of the ultrawide. So that, that, that served my purposes. But before I went on a trip uh, to Europe somewhere, uh, somebody had suggested the 20 millimeter that I talked about. And that very quickly became my go-to lens mm -hmm. for that entire trip. 
There were times when I used regular things, but otherwise, I I put that lens on. I put it f eight. Um, I focused it at two feet and put some gaffer tape on it, and that was it. F eight and be there. Be first, you'd be there, and it worked beautifully. So that's probably not an unreasonable place to start. On a full frame, somewhere in the twenty mil range, yep. or that will cover that range if you are in the micro four thirds, which is so rapidly evolving and emerging. That's something around ten or so. Yeah. I know for me, I would suggest something very similar. You know, if if your brand has something in the line of a 16 to 35, yep. that's a perfect lens. And because of all this depth of field, you don't have to go bankrupt buying the 2 F2 or the 2.8 version. The F4 version is going to be light. It's going to be inexpensive. Right. And it's, you're going to have depth of field for days anyway. Mm-hmm. So unless you're having to shoot everything wide open, why would you? And so if you've not looked at an ultra wide, if you don't have one in your kit, to the point that this member has, has discovered for himself, it can completely help you see the world a little differently. Yeah, he's he's gone absolutely, um, I won't use the word I was thinking, but he's gone really gung-ho over this He's enthusiastic thing. about it. Yeah, that's a good word. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's our word uh, for the week. <laughs> enthusiastic. But it's, uh, he can't believe it, that he's suddenly... Shooting all these things, he, he said, uh, he said, I, I would never have even explored this lens had you not thrown that challenge out. And he looked at this image and said, well, I don't know if use this lens. Maybe I should. And I, I give him a lot of credit for doing that. Me too. Absolutely. I mean, the whole, the whole point of the prime time challenge is to put yourself in a bit of a box, create some constraint that forces you to see. What I've been so impressed by in some of the images that he's been doing and sharing yep. is they're way outside what he would normally do. Absolutely. He's discovering a new style. He's creating a new look. And there's a massive amount of pleasure in the images just for me to look at them. I can see the guy's having a lot of fun. Oh, he's having a ball. Absolute ball. How bad is that? <laughs> well, we've had some people who have been saying recently... Um, this, this whole winter COVID thing has kind of put them in a bad spot as far as their photography goes. And I'm thinking to myself, well, here's a, here's a guy who's in the same position as everybody else who's discovered a whole new genre that he didn't know exist just by taking this thing out of the box and putting it on his camera. It's pretty darn good advice. And another good way, if you feel at all blocked up, this is a great way to get out of it. An ultra-wide makes you see different. Yeah, absolutely. I've got nothing else on this topic, no, I, Gordon. I think, I think that's it. Okay. Well, for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, thanks for listening. I've been Ross. I'm Gordon. And we will speak to you again real soon.